What's up, everybody? Welcome into the 40th episode of the Racing with Robin Roller podcast. I am Josh Roller, coming at you from Charlotte in the Tar Heel State. And with me, as always, is Rob Peters. He's in Indianapolis, and he's coming from the Hoosier State. So in honor of our 40th episode, uh, I'm going to put Rob Peters on the spot right here oh, off boy. the bat. And he's going to tell me his favorite racing paint scheme that ever adorned the number 40. Rob, what is it? Uh, well, okay. Let's let's see. Uh, I really, really like anything Dario Franchitti drove in his brief NASCAR stint. Um, but I really like the Coors Light scheme. So I think for me, I really like David Stremme in 2006. He had a black Coors. Uh, it, was, it was silver and black Coors car. That was really nice. But Dario Franchitti ran a one-off paint scheme. might have been multiple teams, times where he ran a white target scheme uh, in 2008. And I think those two personally are probably some of my favorites. Those two personally, I think those are some of my favorites. Car number 40. I, mean, I know they're both Ganassi cars. I'm, probably, I'm sure there's probably more. I know Kenny Wallace drove a 40 car at one point when he was with Sabco and other things. There's probably tons of IndyCar 40s that I could pick from. But but I think I'm going to pick that. Those I, I think I'm going to pick the Dario one because I always I always like uh, target paint schemes that are white on the base. I think personally those look better than the, the, the red faces, but that's just my opinion. So that's what I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick the one Dario Franchini drove in 2008 that was sponsored by Target. All right. Well, that was a good response, I think. I like I like everything that you said there. So that was good. That was good. I like it. The white target schemes are good. So anyways, we have some news to share, some winners to share, and a couple of races to review, and some upshifting and downshifting as well. We're glad you have joined us today, and we hope you enjoy. Now, let's bring the virtual pace car into the pit area and <laughs> drop the green flag on this podcast with the Rob's Racing Report. All right. Let's go ahead and grab the Rob's Racing Report. Uh, first note on the name with some semi-positive news to start out with. Silverstone's managing director, Stuart Pringle, told The Guardian that a number of scenarios have been discussed in regard to Silverstone and the F1 calendar, including running two F1 races on the same weekend or two races on consecutive weekends. These events would be held behind closed doors. Pringle said, quote, F1 has been working very hard to try and work out the solution for the world, for the world championship. Uh, we, we have been in regular contact with them and been asked, uh, could we hold a race? And have been asked, could we hold a race or two? And could they be behind closed doors? The answer is absolutely. We are open to sticking in, we are open to looking into anything and everything. Uh, so sticking with Formula One news. So that's some good news about Silverstone. Looks like we see a couple of races there this season and we get everything uh, sorted out. Sticking with F1 and it's a return to racing. Claire Williams, deputy team principal at Williams, has stated on Sky Sports that a return to racing. In 2020 is critical for the team. They are one of the few independents left without major backing from sponsors. While expressing that she does not envy the position F1 officials are in when it comes to decision making, she did say, quote, I think this is an opportunity, and I think Formula One and the model within which we operate has been exposed is probably an unsustainable model when something like this happens. Uh, and I, I personally agree with her, not meaning to editorialize too much, but I mean, yeah, I think I do too. seen that way too many times. I can remember. Uh, at the end of 2014, when catering was crowdfunding to make the last the last couple of races, that that was just a disaster, and that should never happen. Um, moving on, AlphaTauri boss Franz Toss, but formerly known as uh, uh, Toro Rosso, shared with Motorsport.com that every missed race cost his team one and a half to two million euros. Toss believes that the shutdown is survivable, but if races are resumed by summer, things can become difficult for smaller, lesser-funded teams. 
Toss said, if, quote, if we start racing in July, we'll get off of the black eye. If that's not the case, things will get very critical. Uh, Lewis Hamilton wrote on his Instagram account that, quote, first off, there is no dream of a, of a dash to another team. I am with my dream team. Second, there is not a thing in my way as I'm not trying to move. I'm with people who have cared from day one. We are the best team. So that was Hamilton's response to being linked to Ferrari as he and Sebastian Vettel's contracts are up to the conclusion of the 2020 season. The past few days have been uh, filled with speculation of when NASCAR will return to racing with the governor of Texas and Texas Motor Speedway making the most noise at the moment. Eddie Gotch has confirmed to Fox 4's Mike, Mike Fox 4's Mike Dosey, I'm not in Texas, so I don't know what Fox 4 is like, but okay, that he would uh, recommend moving the postponed NASCAR Cup date to the IndyCar weekend in June to help save operating costs. Governor Greg Abbott tweeted that he has spoken with NASCAR leaders about returning to Texas soon, but the event would be without fans. Both tracks in Florida, Daytona, and Homestead, Miami, NASCAR-owned tracks, have thrown their names into the ring as a track to return to racing. Another NASCAR-owned track, Darlington Raceway, is being reported by Adam Stern as the track NASCAR returns to racing at, as it is within driving distance from the Charlotte area. So over the weekend, North Carolina lawmakers upon the North Carolina Governor Roy, Roy Cooper to reopen Charlotte Motor Speedway in time for the Memorial Day weekend Coca-Cola 600. The lawmakers' plan would be to have the race be contested with no fans. Charlotte Business Journal's Eric, Eric Spanberg, excuse me, I apologize for... Uh, Butchering that, it's not that hard of a name, Spanberg, uh, obtained the following response from the governor's spokesman, quote, Governor Cooper knows the importance of NASCAR to our state, and he's already been tracking team owners about how we could potentially restart racing. It is too soon to predict specific decisions about future sporting events, but we may, but any plan would prioritize public health and safety and preventing the spread of the virus. Of course, a return to NASCAR racing all hinges on the ability for teams to return to the race shop, either as essential workers or with eased restrictions. The active stay-at-home order in the state of North Carolina is until April 29th. Uh, that is Dale Earnhardt's birthday for everybody who keeps track. As of recording this podcast, no updates have yet been announced by Governor Cooper. Uh, and then we have some ratings news here. That's all the coronavirus news. I'll editorialize just a little bit. I really think it might be too hasty. Like I, people have been saying for a long time, I think June is the right time to get back to going racing, maybe late May get back to possibly restarting some normalcy. Really, truthfully, we have to have at least two weeks of uh, a reduction in the curve for that to hopefully be even possible. Now, like I said, returning to racing with no, like I said here, returning to racing with no fans is probably the best way to get some kind of normalcy back, even if it can't have fans uh, in the event, just primarily for public health. So we'll see what happens on that. So now we'll talk about some ratings for the uh, E-Racing ratings were in this week for E-NASCAR's e iRacing Pro Invitational Series at the virtual Richmond Wasteway. God, why do I always say Richmond Wasteway like I'm a baby or something? Richmond Raceway. Um, the race earned uh, seven, 971,000 viewers. It was the second most watched sporting event this weekend, the first being the new Michael Jordan documentary, which, by the way, if you haven't seen by now, probably it's a good time to check it out. He, I mean, even if you're not a basketball fan, it's it's something to watch. I mean, sports documentaries to me are always entertaining, but that one was definitely good. Uh, that was a but anyway. So NASCAR event was down about 150,000 viewers from two weeks ago at Bristol. IndyCar's virtual race, the Twin Rick Motegi, was about was down about 80,000 viewers with only 120,000 viewers for Sunday's Saturday's IndyCar iRacing Challenge race. But for comparison's sake, 34,000 uh, people watched the first MLS E MLS telecast on episode Sunday. 
And this is completely pointless now, but now they have eCricket too. I watched some of that. Uh, it's it's interesting. It plays the same game that I have, so I'm kind of like wondering how do I get it into some of that. That'll be interesting. So, but yeah. So as I say, that's a rough report. Lots and lots of coronavirus news. Obviously, one we're gonna get back to the racetrack. Some writings for the week for uh, the NASCAR uh, and IndyCar events. You know, overall pretty good. Pretty good. You know, it's not it's not good to see ratings be down, but I think you know most people are probably trying to return to normal or have at least found something else to occupy their time in that time. So I can't expect TV ratings to be really all that important right now. Uh, so let's go ahead and run into our featured paint scheme of the week. Uh, Josh, we're talking about the 2011 NASCAR Sprint Cup Series. And I'm going to go ahead and start mine off because this is always fun to talk about because I think 2011 is also a really good season for NASCAR uh, overall. I mean, I think the, the way they did the new car was really great getting rid of those front braces. I, I didn't like those at all. I didn't yeah. like that how much that splitter stuck out, stuck out. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, I just did, I didn't like the wing. Obviously, the wing had been gone, but uh, making the spoiler look better was it was a was a massive improvement. Um, so here's so so I'm going to talk about a paint scheme that people probably don't remember, or maybe they do remember for the wrong reasons. But it's ingrained yeah. in my brain for some reason because. I don't know what 14-year-old me was all about, but I love this guy for some reason. He was, like the, he was literally the ultimate underdog. He was so much the ultimate underdog. Never win a race, but you still rooted for him. I still rooted for him to do it. Uh, so I'm picking 2010 Rookie of the Year, Kevin Conway's number 97 extends Toyota for Nemco Motorsports. Now, to many, I think Conway is perceived as kind of a joke because of his poor performances in 2010 and because he won the Rookie of the Year in 2010 by default. Because he was the only one. They didn't even run a full season. And he was sued by two teams. Now that, from what I've understood, now this is, take this with a grain of salt, but from what I've understood is that was Conway's marketing team. And he had always been a marketing guy. He brought uh, sponsors over and kind of by himself to fund his racing career. His father had worked with Daryl Walter Motorsports back in the day. Um, But so he had been around NASCAR and racing the time, but he just wasn't that great of a driver, unfortunately, uh, especially not when he got to NASCAR. He did Bush races and the nationwide races um, in the uh, mid-2000s, mid to late 2000s, but it was really around 20, 2009, 2010 uh, that Conway started getting some more notoriety, primarily because his sponsor was just too darn funny to make fun of. I mean, let's be honest. Between that extend sponsorship and Mark, Mark, Mark Martin's Viagra sponsorship, probably two of the most strangest sponsorships, in NASCAR, uh, and I'll never forget as a child asking a friend why I spelled Viagra, drawing Mark Martin's car, and uh, she wanted to know how I knew about that, but uh, I just knew it from Mark Martin. So Josh is laughing. It's, Josh is over here rolling on the floor. Um, so I'm going to continue talking while he he speaks. So, uh, But anyway, so Conway's 2011 scheme was very similar to the scheme he ran in 20, uh, except for there was a variation of the car in Talladega. They ended up changing. Uh, the front end of the car was white uh, for most of the time, but they changed it to blue to kind of match the rest of the car. But it was still a blue, red, and black scheme. Uh, now, Kevin Conway, he had run co-motorsports before. In fact, he was supposed to run a bunch, a handful of races in the Nationwide Series, and he ended up actually doing it. But on the cup side, he did not uh, – his, his job, I should say, was a bit different. He was supposed to run with Joni Nijek in all of the – uh, restrictor plate races, possibly as a tandem partner. Because, uh, you know, back in 2011, you needed 
He absolutely needed that. Now, Kevin Conway actually did start the 2011 Budweiser shootout, uh, which was his uh, second or third um, restrictor plate start. And this was, was interesting because they had made an alteration to the rule that allowed Conway to start. So probably Conway was the only driver, probably was the driver with the worst average finish to make the Bud shootout because he was in as being a prior rookie of the year. That was the new rule. Prior rookie of the year is in 2011, got to make the Bud shootout. So Conway, as having been rookie of the year by default, ended up being entered into the Budweiser shootout, and he took it. Nemco Motorsports gave him a car, and uh, you know he didn't lead anything any laps, but having the tandem there, he could push for other cars and get up there. And he was pushing cars for the most part. He had worked with Joe Nemechek in the uh, Nationwide Series uh, too, so you know he, he, you know, he had done some stuff here and there. But uh, there was a crash, and he got caught into it, so he finished 23rd out of 24 cars. Um, Conway would only attempt their restricted plate races in 2011, starting and parking in all of them after failing to qualify at the Daytona 500. So three races, he ran one non-points race, uh, start and parked all of them. So 43rd finish, as he was credited. Uh, and so the fall Talladega race would actually be final NASCAR appearance, as he then moved to the Lamborghini Blancpain Super Trofeo Series, and won the championship in 2013. How did he win the championship in 2013? I don't know. He just must be a way better road racer than we thought. <laughs> I mean, he must have been a way better road racer than he thought because he, he had some success in that in that series for a couple of years. Um, I've tried to keep up most of what he's doing now. I think Conway, he's, I, I think either his marketing team or something, he might be a, a key investor in the project, but it's actually kind of cool. It's like a, it's a phone case protector. That uh, you can use that that uh, you can use technically in outer space. So it's a super super. It's called Fuzzy. I think they call P H O O Z Y. Uh, so I think that's what they call it. It's it's kind of interesting. I've looked into it. It's kind of interesting technology. You know, you can, it's just a little pouch you can take your phone in, and you know, no matter what happens, you can drop it. You can drop it in water. It can you know go somewhere. Your phone's gonna be perfectly safe. So you know, that's that's kind of interesting. So that but that I just want to talk about Kevin Conway because you know. It, I have all these random drivers that I have pointless knowledge about, and Kevin Conway is one of them. Uh, so that was my little spiel on Kevin Conway and his feature paint scheme. Josh, I want to hear all about yours because I like this one. I remember this one very, very well because I remember watching this race, this race that this car ran at while while I had come back from the uh, Dan Wendell Weldon Memorial Service that was held at Baker's Life Fieldhouse. Maybe week after he passed away. So, Josh, I want to hear all about this one because I, I, this was a good-looking car. Yeah, I'm going with it. Like he said, a one-off. Clint Boyer's one number 33. Clint Boyer's number 33 Chevrolet, 100-year Chevrolet for Richard Childers Racing. Uh, the car was base black, uh, and with the middle of the sides and the rear deck lid were silver. Uh, the bottom was black, and then separating the silver from the black in all areas were red lining. Uh, the 33 on the side was red with white lining. And then on the roof, the 33 was white with red lining. And then the hood, uh, had, was black and had the big Chevrolet 100 years logo. And then it had Cheerios logo right below it. Cause that was his big primary sponsor that year was general mills. Um, and the car, it, like I said, it was only running at the good Sam 500 at Talladega super speedway. And that was on October 23rd, 2011. Uh, Boyer started third in that race and won it. 
Uh, and it was really one of the most memorable finishes, I think, at least since I've started watching NASCAR, which is now, this is now my 20th season uh, watching NASCAR. So uh, it was a green, white, green, white checkered restart. Jeff Burton uh, was leading. He started on the outside. He slid in front of Clint Boyer. Like we see so often, you know, if you have teammates there, you let them slide in and they started tandem drafting mm-hmm. and they yarded the field. They yarded the field so much that on, they took the white flag and on the final lap, Exiting turn four, Clint Boyer, who was behind and pushing Jeff Burton, pulls out below, and they weren't caught by the rest of the field. No, the rest of the field was tandem drafting. They were all kind of in this swarm together, even pushing all this air. They did, couldn't catch him. So I, I don't. I, wish, I should have measured it. How far it is from day, basically the exit of turn four to the start finish line of the uh, on the short shoot there, leading into uh, turn one at Talladega. But they went that entire distance basically side by side, going slower and slower and slower. And Clint Boyer just beats him by that much, just by that much, 18 hundredths of a second. And you also might remember this race too, just as a note, Dave Blaney finished third. (laughs) You know what I remember about this race? You know what I remember about this race? I'm going to tell an anecdote. Tell it. Because I want to tell so like I said, I, I saw this car race while when I went to uh, the Dan Wilder Memorial. So when after Dan Wilder passed away, there was a big memorial that they held uh, down at Baker's Light Fieldhouse, and they had all kind of drivers. I mean, it was it was open to the public. I mean, I think I think you had to pay like maybe a couple dollars or something to get in the front gate, but after that, it was it wasn't very expensive or anything. Um, just probably to cover like a few costs here and there, but um, it was more. It was essentially a memorial, or maybe they didn't even charge. I can't. I have the program from it. I'll have to remember. But after that memorial, because it only took me about an hour, so I missed like the first half of that Talladega race. And then after we went to the race, I remember my dad and I went to. If you're in Indianapolis, uh, this place is now the Permonte Brothers outside of Bankers. But at the time in 2011, it was a California Pizza Kitchen, and so they had the race on right in front, of the sitting in the California Pizza Kitchen, and um, I remember just sitting there watching the race. And, uh, man, did I want Jeff Burton to win. You know, I know we're talking about Clint Boyer. Man, there was something about – I just wanted to see Jeff Burton be like, yeah, I still got it. You know, I can still yeah. win one of these things. You know, because yeah. Jeff Burton was – really, he was in the twilight of his career at that time. And I was just really, really pulling for Burton that whole last lap. I was like, you got to beat Boyer. you got to beat Boyer, man. And, he didn't protect the bottom well enough. Hey, yeah, uh, no, he didn't. He didn't. I, well, I think Tandem drafting. Back then, and even then, tandem drafting is still difficult for me to do. So, I mean, you there's a lot of mental toughness and mental uh, being mentally fit to to tandem draft, and that's why I really feel like those guys back in 2011. I I wouldn't have wanted to race like imagine imagine back in 2011 running like every restrictor plate race. I mean, the trucks, the, the nationwide cars, the cars, everybody was tandem. Trucks weren't supposed to tandem, but they found ways to do so. I just would, I feel like I would just dread all of the restricted plate races in 2011 because you would have to tandem in order to even have a chance to win. And the amount of mental exhaustion I feel after tandeming for a lap is inc- incredible. 
because you're there's so much that's going on. You're relying on the guy in front to keep a hold of a straight line and not make any erratic moves while they're also dragging the brakes so that you can stay on their bumper and you can't make any erratic moves because if you you know turn the wheel one wrong direction, that other guy is in the wall and you just lost your drafting partner and nobody else is with you because you just wrecked that guy a complete accident. So it's really just it was crazy stuff back then. Yeah. 2011 was one crazy year for racing, too. Mm-hmm. 2011, 2012 was even wilder, I think, uh, especially in Formula One. Formula One had that wild season where randomly Pastor Maldonado race after starting on the pole for reasons yeah. nobody could understand. I still don't so, know if anyone has, everyone has completely <laughs> recovered from that. I still remember that, that, that race. I remember watching uh, the qualifying the morning before. And then I went to church the next morning, and I felt my phone or my iPod or something buzz. And it went, Pastor Maldonado, Spanish Grand Prix, and I had to do like four or five double takes to even believe it for a minute. I was like, there's no way this just happened. <laughs> I, 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 I need ten sources to confirm this, that this right. is true. Right, literally, I had to like, go back and this actually happened. Like, I did not just get fooled. On, yeah. on, on a Sunday morning, it says, oh, Pastor Maldonado won this race. Like, <laughs> so anyway, let's go ahead and move on. Josh, I want to talk here talk about all this piece, this week's winners um, in the iRacing that we've had, because we've been doing this uh, since the coronavirus pandemic started. There's a lot to talk about. I think let's go ahead and talk about some of, our, our, uh, some of that. Yeah, we're not going to list every winner, because there's been a lot of it going on. But so ones many. that are, are, are more... Are definitely more the the highlight of them all. So Wednesday night i racing from uh, last week they had they had two races on FS1 there. The first with the UMP Modifieds IROC Special at the Virtual Belusa Speedway. Chase Briscoe won that one. And then the second race was Sports Cars, another IROC Special at the Virtual Lime Rock Park. That was won by Scott Speed. Uh, then you had uh, E Truck Night in America at the Virtual Richmond Raceway. Malik Ray won that event. Uh, he usually drives the number 51 Rowdy Energy Camry uh, in the E-Coca-Cola iRacing Series for Joe Gibbs Racing. So that's who he is. You can watch him every other Tuesday night uh, in that series. Uh, on Saturday, there was the IndyCar iRacing Challenge, the Firestone 175 at the Virtual Twin Ring Motegi Speedway. Simon Pagino won that race. And boy, was that an interesting finish. We'll talk about that here in a few moments. Also on Saturday was the Saturday Night Thunder at Richmond at the Virtual Richmond Raceway again. Josh Berry won that event. That was a fun race to watch. I'm pretty sure you can watch that one on YouTube. A lot of these you can find on YouTube after the fact. But that one is a race you should go back and watch. They, they had three heat races to figure he was in, and then and then two uh, last-chance qualifiers. Those were some interesting races to wa- watch these. I think it's going to happen again on Saturday night, um, this time at Talladega. They're fun to watch, folks. They're fun to watch. You also see some names you usually don't see. Um, and then so on Sunday, you had the E NASCAR iRacing Pro Invitational Series, the Toyota Owners 150 at the Virtual Richmond Raceway. Willie B, William Byron, came away with another victory there. Uh, again, we'll talk about that race a little bit too. So one of the top takeaways, we're only going to concentrate on the IndyCar and the E NASCAR side this week. But for IndyCar, it was really, uh, there's one caution early, and I'm like, oh, crap. I was just going to turn to a caution fest, but no, it did not. It was basically over 100 laps of green flag racing. Um, really good racing all around. I thought it was, you know, for, again, you have the level of people 
talent in there, then just the level of you know racing and knowing your surroundings, as we've talked about, and you'll hear on the broadcast too. Can't you know you got to watch how close you get because of the net code, but really good racing all around. Again, uh, plenty of passing. Uh, the fuel game once again came in, but the top runners were able to be in a position to win this this time around, unlike last week at Michigan. So they were able to yeah be in a little better position. Kyle Busch started in the back, stayed out of trouble, and he didn't have a lot of screen time, but he finished 13th, mm-hmm. folks. Mm-hmm. He had a solid day uh, in, for his IndyCar debut. Now, Junior had a better IndyCar debut than him. Jimmy Johnson had a better IndyCar debut than him, but um, I think under different, they were all, uh, three completely different circumstantial races. So it's still 13th Kyle Busch, his Indy, IndyCar debut, all but virtual. Still a very good day. Um, did you, you saw the willpower, Scott McLaughlin, Oliver Askew incident, right? Oh, of course I did. Okay. All right. I, I thought you did, but I just wanted to confirm. Let's talk about that for a second. Cause it looked like <laughs> this race was going to come down between willpower and Scott. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, here's a guy comes in here with fresh tires. Says, "I'm going to take a three wide with you." And you, and I don't think you go three wide in, in turns three and four at Twin Ring Motegi, but he did. No. Um, I thought I, I couldn't. I actually, I remember it took me a full lot for me to say anything, and I can't repeat what I said on the podcast. What I said, but it wasn't. What the heck did I just <laughs> see? And I, I'm like, I, I could not believe what Oliver Askew did. And I think I tweeted just a few moments, moments later, like Oliver Askew leaving Twin Ring Motegi and it's got that whatever character dodging, exploding bombs, running away. Yeah. I was, I was, I was a little shocked. What, what did you think? What did you think? Was it a good move by Oliver or was it a poor move? It was, it's, it's not a, it's not a good, it wasn't a good move. It definitely wasn't a good move. It wasn't the kind of move that I would have made under any circumstances. I think it's a situation like that where to go, you still need to be patient. You still, you still, it's, that's the thing. You still need to be patient. You can't just be, you know, even in eye racing, you can't, even in a short lap, in a short eye racing event, you still have to be patient. You, you have to take, uh, you, you have to be patient. You have to take your things, uh, you know, almost a, a, a turn at a time. You know, plan your moves, you know, do things like that. And I didn't see that out of him. So, especially going into that turn, I think I think when you're talking about where you're going into turns three and four at Motegi, if you've never driven turns three and four at Motegi, you're lucky because it is a tough turn. Mm-hmm. And when you go three wide down there, it... It's not going to work. Um, someone's going to get pushed out of the groove, and someone's going to wreck. And I think, yes, Askew probably just thought, okay, to heck with it, I'm going to dive it in here. <clears throat> but you can't do that. You can't be doing that, I especially with 10 laps to go. And three, okay, look, Twin Ring Motegi turns three and four is so narrow. Turns one and two, flat out. You are flat out. Turns three and four, you have to downshift twice. Mm-hmm. You're downshifting twice. That is how you that multiple times. Exactly. I mean, I know that. Like when I race the twin Remo Tangy in an indie car in a simulator, I know that. I have to download downshift twice. You have to downshift if at least twice. If you're in fifth gear, you have to get down to at least third and then try and get a good run up off the corner so you can carry as much momentum and speed all the way around the rest of the racetrack. The thing about it is, is that 
That's not a passing zone. You, you, you want to set up the pass. You want to use that turn to set up your pass for that you could complete either uh, hopefully in turn one. I think Askew being – he's never raced here. You know, I don't think he's ever really raced it with Motegi. You know, of course, nobody had. Nobody had. Well, Power did. Yeah, Power a few, did. A few of the drivers in the field had raced there in, in real life. It, it just had been a while. It's just been yes. – gosh, that's right. It's just been a while. I <laughs> had to think back. It's, it's, like, been at least, it's been 10 years. This is – yeah, it has – gosh, it has been 10 years, man. But, you know, I, I just think that it, it was a risky move that he didn't need to take. I understand it's a video game. I understand all that. But video game or not, you should be focused on a good finish. You shouldn't be focused on just being like – I mean, wreckers or checkers can apply at Talladega with two to go. It doesn't really apply a twin ring Motegi with 10 to go. You know what I mean? You know, yeah. records or checkers is, 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 is not exact. That's not the time. I mean, he had plenty of time to set up that move, and I think he should have waited to make the move, especially not in a turn three. When you're, I mean, it looked like he caught both Power and McLaughlin off guard, and I think neither of them expected him to make that. You're already going too wide. It's a one-groove turn. I mean, you wouldn't try and make it three wide at Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. No. Why no. would you do the same thing here? I mean, 10 to go, it doesn't matter. 10 to go to Indianapolis, three wide, because you don't want to lose the race with 10 to go. If you're going to lose the race, lose the race with one to go. Don't lose it with 10 to go. You know what I mean? That's my takeaway. Josh, I don't know what your takeaway is. I, th- I mean, y- y- your, your theory could be completely right. I think he thought he had grip to stay on the bottom because he had fresher tires. I, you know, it might have just been a few more laps, but he had fresher tires than Scott and Will and was faster. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. again, you don't go three wide. And plus, you were lapped, and you don't want to do anything to um, take away from the race lead battle, for the race win battle, you know. And, and I think he took away what was maybe going to be a really good finish for for the viewers. Mm-hmm. And they still did get a, a good finish, because, and I'll mention that here in a second, they still did get a good finish, but a good finish for, for two team versus two teammates. I think that was gonna. Right. That, that's sort of what we got. I, I won't call it robbed. Will Power and Scott McLaughlin fans got robbed yes. of, of, of of the battle. Um, but yeah, I think he just misjudged it. Um, I think it was during Sunday's E NASCAR race. I think it might have been Adam Alexander who mentioned it. It's like, is any of this animosity gonna gonna carry over to real world racing? Gosh, um, that's a good it, question. <laughs> because I, if, uh, I'm pretty new to the Instagram game. I don't really post anything. I just follow and, 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 and watch and, and, and follow different, a few different accounts. But Will Power is one I follow. And, mm-hmm. and he said, there's definitely one blank out there today. <laughs> I saw that. I thought, I mean, again, this, <laughs> this guy's awesome. With, he's, he's doing that. He's done social media good for a long time, but he's definitely. He's definitely owning it up here, and he's expressing his opinions on it. And I, I mean, you're like, can you blame him? I can't blame him because I think no. he feels because despite that, moving on, sort of now, you know, him and Simon Pat, he survived this somehow. He survived and was able to hold on to the lead for a bit. And then here comes Simon Pagano. I don't want to. Inter- I sorry to interrupt you. I just want to note that you said you were very new to Instagram, and this just reminded me. I talked about this at the beginning. Dario Franchitti right now is it, this is just pup PSA like completely irrelevant to the conversation. But Dario Franchitti right now is doing 
really cool thing called Dario's Career in Cars, where every day he posts a new year and a new experience about a different car that he drove during his racing career. Ooh, yeah. He is right now on the NASCAR. And his stories that he is telling on those posts are very interesting. Very, very interesting. His NASCAR experience, I think the thing that's interesting is that he's like, he wanted to do NASCAR because he wanted to do something different. But the moment that he got into a car, he immediately regretted that decision. <laughs> as soon as he started his first NASCAR event, he had regretted the decision almost immediately. So if you're you're on Instagram, go follow Dario Franchitti because he has he's been doing a really, really good series so far. Dario's career in cars. I've really been enjoying because I don't use Instagram very much either. I don't follow it. That has been one of my favorite follows, I think, of the whole quarantine, whole COVID-19 situation is Dario's career in cars. I look forward to those posts like every morning. So anyway, I want you to continue. I just wanted to add that in because you Instagram and I'm and you were aware of that because it is very cool. So anyway, go ahead and continue. I hope I didn't make you lose your place. No, no, no. Good name, good drop by by uh, by Rob on that one. So what what I was saying was now Will was able to hold on. He he survived that. Scott didn't. He he he. I raced, flipped hard, mm -hmm. uh, but Will was able to survive with essentially visibly was just right front wing damage or left front wing damage, and he. Um, was able to hold him to the lead for a bit. And here comes Simon Pagano, and then all of a sudden they kind of he started hitting. He's like he's like dooring his teammate on the straights, and um, but Simon does prevail. He's got a better car, but he starts going a little bit slower because he's got damage. Might have used up a little more of his tire. And here comes Scott. Scott Dixon is just like inching forward. He was like Jaws the entire race behind these Penske cars. Just. Da -da. Da -da, da -da. And he was there. <laughs> he made the move on the final lap. He got in there. Simon kind of shut the door into turn one and held, and he was able to hold him off for the rest of the lap. And he won uh, the race. Uh, and then at the end, I, I, we, I, I don't know. We, I don't I, seeing all the social media stuff. I couldn't even post it, uh, or piece it together. I don't know if Simon checked up too soon or if Scott intentionally rear-ended Simon out of like, hey, I didn't like what you did there. Not sure. Might have been both. But, anyways, I wanted to point out, despite that damage, Will Power finishes third place. And mm -hmm. I think he's been the most consistent guy here because here's his finishes. Third, second, fourth, and third in these iRacing events. And um, I think that's pretty, that's pretty good. Uh, of course, he, that's where he sometimes runs. He, he can put those – that could be any number of races this year in IndyCar. That could be his four finishes in four races. So – but he's been definitely been the most consistent. Sage Karen's kind of he didn't really have a good day at Twin Ring, and he was the other guy who was doing really well. Scott McLaughlin though has also been very good. He's he's been a guy who's been up there, and and Simon's been up there too. So there's been some really good consistent drivers, and we haven't had just any shockers. Um, I, and in the uh, IndyCar side, you had Sage, Scott McLaughlin, uh, and now Simon Pagano back to back are either. I think we both can probably agree that McLaughlin win is probably the sh most shocking out of those, right? Yeah. Okay. All right, good. We're on the same page there. So we'll, we'll let's move on to NASCAR now. And um, you bought, there was a there's a little bit of, like, what's going on? Why, why are we mm -hmm. doing this? Because they cut the field down to 26. And guys like Cole Custer, da Dale Earnhardt Jr., Daniel Suarez were out of the picture. They yeah. weren't going to be in the race. 
And a lot of this was, I think a lot of this was just really a, a gut reaction to what, what we saw at Bristol. And Bristol was definitely a cluster, but it's a different short say, track yeah, than Richmond. Cluster is being nice, I think. I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be nice because I'm trying not to use what you should use. But I, they were also trying to make it so there was so many cautions because when cautions – you know that, that that's not that's not good television. Even you know, no, especially yeah. when you already had eight when you had eight cautions, one hundred fifty laps. It's just not good television. But they said twenty six cars going to be in the race, and then they say, oh, "Okay, hold on, we'll open it up to more." So they had a uh, they had invited thirteen drivers to race in a last chance qualifier. The top two finishers would automatically advance, and the box would have their own provisionals. And I thought they did it the right way, even though I think one guy was definitely going to be in it no matter what. Um, Bobby Labonte won that qualifying race. Landon Castle was second. A little surprise on the Bobby Labonte front. A little, just just a little. <laughs> but he also sat on the pole for that race, and he went on to win it. Landon Castle finished second. Wasn't a huge surprise to me. Daniel Suarez and Dale Hart Jr. both finished third. They they didn't start there, but there were some other incidents that happened during the race. They finished third and fourth. Fox gives them the provisionals. I think Jr. would get a provisional no matter what, personally, because Dale Jr. is going to bring in more people to watch the the main event. Oh so yeah. So I. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say even if he finished thirteenth, that was gonna happen. But still, it's Dale Earnhardt Jr., most popular driver in, in NASCAR history. Arguably, he's gonna be in the race. Um, so that that was that. That was good. But this week, no resets. You mm-hmm. had you had the car you started with, and that was it. So that led to some pretty clean racing. I think even with one reset, guys will race pretty clean because I think we saw that at Bristol for the most part, other with the exception of maybe five drivers. It was rather clean, clean racing at Bristol, but still no resets. It's like your actual car out there, except you could wait in the pits for six minutes to have your car fully repaired or 90% repaired or whatever it was. Um, I think it was pretty clean in a really good race. I really do. Now let's talk about the um, little incident between uh, that, that got Matt Benedetto parked. Okay. Yes. So it all started when Ryan Priest restarted the race. He had, he had older tires, and he kind of fell back. He started falling backwards because he got on the outside, started falling back. All right, getting into turn one, kind of Matty D goes in there. Matt Benedetto gets in there, and and he accidentally turns Ryan Priest. All right, turns him, but it was on you know he got cut off. The incident could happen in real life. I mean, that was a real life racing incident potential. Okay, well Priest gets Matty D back. He's, I didn't like that, Matt. I'm gonna I'm gonna wreck you now. Well, he did. And then Matt says, Well, screw this. I'm gonna wreck him too. And he gets parked for it. So again, would you do it in real life? No. No. Maybe no, a little maybe a little bit, but seeking an, an additional revenge like is probably not good look. So if you're not going to do it in real life, don't do it here. And we'll talk. We'll get. We'll share more of our, our more thoughts on that on that later in the upshift downshift segment. Spoiler alert. Um, and William Byron dominates, conserves tires, and holds off Timmy Hill's late race charge. Um, and then subsequent green white checkered. He he had like a second, a one second, one point two second lead with four or five to go, and that caution comes out. And I'm sure he's like, oh, crap. You could see it. The caution, he saw the caution was out before the Fox broadcast team saw it. And <laughs> oh, man. Dang it. 
I don't want this because he was a little bit on older tires too compared to the rest of the guys behind him. Um, so he was he was he needed to get a good restart, which he did. Got out to a good lead. Hill made a charge there into the uh, into turns one and two on the final lap. Couldn't get him. And William Byron even told us after the race he had a I can't remember the guy's name because I didn't write it down and I and I couldn't find the the full broadcast to find this out. But uh, he had a guy practice with him on getting to his bumper and him breaking and saving it and being able to, you know, avoid basically a, a bump and run like that happened to him at Texas. Mm-hmm. So I thought that's impressive. That's preparation. So good for him. That was a good race overall. Uh, Rob, did you have any uh, thoughts before we move on from that race? Not very many thoughts. I think, I think any thoughts that I covered in the upshift now, so I think we can okay. just wait for that. All righty. All right. So the, um, outstanding performance time. Uh, Rob, let's start with you, and um, I think we're going to have a lot to agree on this week. Well, yeah, because unfortunately we kind of both picked the same guy, but I picked him in one one side, and you picked him in another side. So I know it's not normal for us to pick the same person like this, but I, you know, after watching that IndyCar race, I know we did get a lot of got a lot of attention, but I was still impressed with Kyle Busch. I was still impressed with his ability to drive the the IndyCar around there. I was still impressed with his how up to speed he was. No, I mean, the finish was great. But, you know, I think in terms of how he drove the, how he, how he drove everything else, I thought it was very, very impressive. And so, you know, I think that, I, I mean, personally, I wrote here, I can't be a favorite to win any IndyCar races he chooses to run in the future. You know, I, I, I still remember, what was it, maybe 2016, I asked him straight up, like, like, are you going to do the 500? Like, are you going to do the 500? Because you won everything you can win here in Indianapolis on the cup side. At that point, he had. Um, no, he still has, technically. I'm like, but are you going to do Indianapolis? You know, because you could be, you know, Kyle Busch, let's be honest with us, could very well be the first driver to ever say they've won the Indy 500 and the Berger. I would agree. But, you know, nobody else could say that. Kyle Busch has every opportunity and every – Every drop of talent needed to do that. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw him go out there, I was very impressed with his patience. Um, you know, that's not something people always say Kyle Bush. You don't usually talk about his patience. But I think behind the wheel of an Indy car, he was so much more patient. And he he just ha- he drove with this level of maturity that was at least 20 times his, his experience level, at least behind an Indy car. So that's why I'm giving up to Kyle Bush for this. I know, it's, you know, we can talk about things being different from the real life but i racing is so similar now i really think that kyle bush is if he does the indy 500 or any future he's going to be has have just as much success as his brother did if not you know kurt did a fantastic job back in 2014 i'd love to see him go back out there and do it again but you know i think his brother it, it, both bush brothers could could go ahead and do it you know, both of them could run the run the race, run the double, and probably have good finishes. Both, and eh, well, we'll see. Uh, it, it's hard to do the whole double. Yeah. Um, there's a reason why Tony Stewart's the only person who's ever been able to do it. Robbie Gordon, John Andretti, Kurt Busch, um, yeah, they can't say the same thing. You know, unfortunately, because it's just a hard thing to do. So, well, but but that's why I'm giving it to to old Rowdy today. So, Josh, why don't you tell us why you gave your standing performance to Rowdy? Yeah, I gave mine not based off of a single performance, but an overall improvement. I think we saw 
when we started this a month ago, Kyle Busch was like, is this Kyle Busch actually driving that 18 M&M's Toyota Camry for Joe Gibbs Racing? That's what, that was my thought. I'm like, where is this? Where's this? Who's behind the wheel? Is this a dog behind the wheel of this car? But he's improved so much. And then when you go out there and you see what he did in the Indy car, again, I said, you know, you know, it wasn't as uh, you know, junior had a third place finish. Jimmy Johnson finished 12th in his debut, but the, the I'm sure he put in a lot of time and effort because he wants to get better at this. And then mm-hmm. he goes out there and he finishes fifth behind four really good eye racers, Byron Hill, Kligerman and castle. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, yeah, Richmond's a pretty good track for Kyle, but you know, those yeah, were some pretty heavy. Arguably one of his favorite yeah. He, I mean, he, he did the improvement, just simply the improvement. I'm not choosing it for one race though. I'm, I'm highlighting two races, but it's just an overall improvement. And I think it shows why Kyle is also, a you know, this generational driver that where if he could get behind anything, you give him enough time, he will su- succeed and win, whether it's physical or virtual. Um, and I do think he'll be in iRacing victory lane soon. If we do it long enough, uh, he, we, will, we will see him in, in, in victory lane. So, um, yeah, so Kyle Busch, both of our outstanding performances today. Um, so with that, let's move on to the upshift, downshift segment. Um, we got uh, five questions for you. Upshift, you agree? Downshift, you don't? We might have a... Uh, Kind of has a couple hypotheticals and some news-related stuff here. Hypothetical statement or something that actually happened, whether we agree, disagree, we upshift or downshift, or we keep it in neutral if we kind of don't have an opinion on it. Play along on Twitter, too. Don't forget. Yeah. Play along on Twitter. Hashtag Robin Roland. Play along sure. on Twitter. Answer these questions yourselves. You guys are as much on the podcast as we are. So There you hey, go. Man. Absolutely. So with this first one, let's, kick, let's get going. Yet again, another driver. We said earlier, Matt Benedetto during the NASCAR race at the virtual Richmond Raceway was parked for rough driving. <laughs> Do you upshift or downshift, Rob? You know, it's kind of hard to, to talk about. Like I said, and I don't know clear. There's a reason why Josh talked about all the NASCAR stuff and I talked about NASCAR stuff because I've been moving. I've been actually in the, been in the process of moving. So on Sunday, I was almost completely busy. Uh, so I didn't get to see the race. But... In my opinion, from what I've seen, I think these drivers are viewing, they're more carefree because they don't have to worry about, you know, paying anybody or anybody, you know, crashing is not a big deal. You crash, you get like, what, one or two resets and then you're, you're good to go, you know? I think drivers are taking, I think it should be, in my opinion, be no resets and, you know, the penalties are the same. You know, if you're rough driving, if you're wrecking people on purpose, you don't need, to be out there because you're just making us look bad. You're making the the series look bad. You're making yourself look bad in front of sponsors, in front of other people. I just don't think it's a good idea. I think, you know, regardless, because, you know, I don't know if De Benedetto is, I don't know if punishment fits a crime, you know, from what you talked about, it, it seems like maybe it didn't, but I think that still we need NASCAR, racing in general, especially the ones that are going to televise this sort of stuff on TV. We need to keep it clear. IndyCar does a pretty good job of that. You know, we we probably need to start thinking about making things a little bit more clean. Because and, 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 guys are, like, losing sponsorships and guys are losing, like, rides and stuff for the con- conduct. 
in here. It's just kind of like, dude, we should probably try and get these guys to behave a little bit. We're going to do this. Otherwise, mass chaos is going to ensue, and that's just not an ideal situation. So for me, I'm going to upshift because I think it's – I think you've got to do it. You can't have guys just going around there throwing caution into the wind when you're trying to put on a good show for people who are desperately missing racing right now. So you downshift. You don't upshift. You downshift. I downshift. Oh, maybe I didn't read the question. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My point is I don't. I, I agree. I agree with him being part for rough driving. Is what I was saying. So. I I I downshift because I don't like it happening because I think it's per, there's also a perception if someone if you wreck someone intentionally in the real world. The consequences are different. Therefore, the people are thinking it's just different to the people. Here, it looks silly. You're wrecking people intentionally on a video game that's being televised, even though I know it's not a video game. It's it's not a video game at all. But that's why maybe the casual fan or the someone who doesn't watch this every week or watch NASCAR every week or racing every week is going to perceive it. So the perception is automatically different. Um. To make matters worse, I don't mention this before. Maybe you, maybe you saw this, but he was wearing a giraffe suit this week, and Sporting News put out driver wearing giraffe suit gets parked during iRacing race. I'm like, that just makes it worse. It had to be the guy wearing the giraffe suit, right? Right. So, I mean, again, the perception in on the platform is different. If this is the platform is the real Richmond Raceway in a real race. You know, paying someone back actually may not lead to you being parked. Okay. It depends on how you pay them back. Mm-hmm. Right. But once you start going after someone over and over again, yeah, NASCAR might park you in your life as, as did I racing, but the fans are going to like it more and aren't going to, and, and, and as in general, it won't be like, wow, bunch of stupid people out here. So I think the perception is what bothers me more on how we're doing things during this difficult time. So therefore I downshift. Another guy getting parked. Um, that's, that's fine. That's a fine tag. I mean, I, I can't disagree with that. I just, I think we just, you don't, you don't want to put on, uh, you don't want to show new viewers, new potential viewers that this is what racing is. It's just crashing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, yeah. I don't, I don't want that. And that's not exactly something that I like to see. I mean, I'm fine if it's just an isolated incident, you know, if, or if it's, you know, if it's like Bristol, baby, you know, a guy bumps you the wrong way and you get payback on him, you know, mm-hmm. you wreck him, you know, but usually you could go out and you could settle that in the pit road. You know, you could go out and you can settle that. You could punch the guy. You could talk to him. You can do whatever. And not racing. If you're, if you're, if you're bad, if you're mad, what are you going to do? Punch your screen? No, you can't punch through the screen. So I guess they think, Oh, well, I'll just wreck this guy because my race is over anyway. And I'll end his. It's like, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, you can go ahead and do that, but, what is that? What kind of message is that showing? Is that we're we're just all about crashing cars? Even if it's in a virtual environment, we're all about crashing cars, and that I don't think that's exactly the message that we want to be sending to new fans. Exactly, exactly. All right, so question number ten here. A uh, little sensitive. We're bringing up some bad stuff here, but it's I think it's a, a fair question to ask. Um, both the eNASCAR race uh, on Sunday at the Virtual Richmond Raceway and Saturday's IndyCar iRacing Challenge event at the Virtual Twin Ring Motegi so, uh, saw reduced viewership. Do you upshift or downshift that the Kyle uh, Larson incident last weekend had in, an effect on the reduced viewership? I absolutely upshift because I think if you've seen anything on NASCAR, a ton of people aren't happy about it. 
And, and, and those people who aren't happy about it are usually the kind of people who will boycott things. Um, they will boycott things. I mean, that's just what they do. I mean, I'm not going to name names and name demographics or anything, but, you, you know, I think we most of, mostly know the kind of people that we're talking about, you know. NASCAR fans that, you know, are maybe a little bit older, maybe not necessarily as in touch with other per- perspectives, um, if that if that makes any sense. Not Again, not trying to berate anybody, but but you know what I mean. And I, I, I do think that that's entirely plausible, that, that, that people were just – there were probably people on both sides of the aisle that saw this and said, oh, boy, I don't want to see that ever again, or oh, boy, I don't want to deal with NASCAR right now. Or there's people who are like, oh, no, NASCAR is wrong. They did the wrong thing. They made the wrong move. They need to free Kyle Larson right now. I'm not going to support them until they do something like that. You know, I think it was in the middle of that. But also I think, you know, this is unfortunately, this is where I'm going. I think we're just oversaturated on iRacing right now. I really, I mean, dude, I can't hardly keep up with half the stuff that's going on. Like I watch the, the stuff on the weekends. But then there's other races happening, like, all over the place at all these different times. I, I just can't keep up with it. I think we're oversaturating ourselves a little bit with all these things. I think if we just kept it to, you know, one race per series, you know, per week, or maybe a midweek race here and there, you know, I don't mind the Wednesday night racing stuff. I don't mind racing on weekends and stuff. But when we're doing this stuff every day at, at all these different hours, I mean, how do you keep up? How do you keep up? I mean, this is not normal. Nobody has to do it. In fact, I just, I've just i read from journalists who are trying to cover all this. You know, I, I they're, they're overwhelmed. You know, the fact of the matter is they're overwhelmed. You know, I just read a thread from someone, from my journalist friends, that says he's overwhelmed with how much he has to cover because there's so many e-racing events. Some of them are happening at the same time, and he can't cover both of them. You know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's just genuinely hard. So I think we could just be oversaturating our market here a little bit, like too many of these things. Uh, but, you know, back to my main point, it could also be because you've got some proud boys out there who are upset that, or proud boys or people who, or, you know, people who already had an idea of what NASCAR was in their mind, solidified it for them or something. You know, people like that. I think there's a lot of, that they could fall into a lot of things. So, you know, while I'm upshifting, I'm also, I also want to add those other factors that probably could have happened. So yeah, I upshift, but I also think that there's other factors to it. I think that this was one, but this is definitely one of the factors. I upshift too. I'm not going to add much more because you said everything I, in, in, in a roundabout way I want to say. I think there's just definitely some people who, I, I don't know if, that maybe we're just simply turned off from, wow, that was said on an IRA. I'm not going to turn in this week. Maybe it was also because Bristol was a was a crash fest. And again, maybe because there is so much saturation, but some of it is just so much independent, and that's one thing we're not covering a lot here because there is a lot, too. Let's, let's keep it to the big ones that we're doing. You know, Wednesday night NASCAR, the IndyCar, and the NASCAR on Saturday and, and uh, Sunday afternoons. You know, th- those are the big ones, and those are the ones that are sort of being promoted by the series. And the networks, right. right? So that's what we're keeping contrary to. But yeah, there's definitely some motion for saturation. I do think, though, to upshift the question that the Kyle Larson incident did play a role in the reduce uh, reduction in viewership numbers in both events, even though the Kyle Larson event or uh, incident took place in a stock car event. It, I still think it maybe played a role in the redu- reduction in viewership in the IndyCar side. So um, third question here, 
um, th- discussions and ideas on what F1 and Liberty Media are thinking as far as the redesigned schedule um, really hasn't been you know, revealed and hasn't been discussed out loud. But Silverstone, as you brought up earlier in Rob's race report, has brought up the, uh, the idea of running two races at a single track on a single weekend or back-to-back weekends. Uh, so um, do you upshift or downshift that when F1 restarts for the sake of the smaller teams? F1 should race at circuits more than once in order to give teams more money. I upshift, but I also want to add to that, not only do I upshift, but I also think they shouldn't be doing flyaway races either. You know, don't try and don't, like, stay in Europe is basically what I'm saying. Just just stay in Europe and, you know, you can go to Germany. There's plenty of historical racetracks that I'm sure are FIA grade one certified that you can go to. You don't need to be trying like at this point, I mean, maybe in by November when all of this is fixed, maybe by November all of this is fine. Then that's fine. Then we can try and maybe say, all right, we might try and go to um, certain the Americas. We might try to go to Mexico. We might try to go to Brazil. But in the event that doesn't happen and you're going to run races behind closed doors, you can't be doing flyaway races. Just stay in Europe. Stay in Europe because the that I mean, all of your teams are located in Europe. There's no reason you should be making them load their cargo on a ship or a plane and try and get it to Vietnam or, or you know, Singapore or China or something. There's just no reason for it. Just stay in Europe. There's plenty of great tracks in Europe that are probably not going to be very difficult for teams to get to. I mean, you have tons of great tracks in France, tons of great tracks in Great Britain, tons of great tracks in Germany. Uh, you, you could go to the Netherlands if you want. Go to Holland. I'd love to see Go to Zandvoort. I'd love to see them go to Sandboard, you know, places like that. You know, if you double up, you double up. But my point is, try and keep the cost as reduced as physically possible. Like I said, if no flyover races are possible, don't be trying to get flyover races in. You know, just cancel them and call it a day. You know, um, it, it's not going to be the end of the world for me if Formula One doesn't come to the United States later this year. But it is going to be the end of the world for me if a lot of the smaller end up going away because. They came here. You know what I mean? So I think it's a trade-off. I think if they really want to get racing closed doors, they, it should just stay here. So that's where I'm going with. That's how I'm going with it. I'm going to upshift, but I'm going to add that, that no flyaways. Once again, you took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I guess so, we're on the same page a here. Yeah. So, yeah, I upshift too. And, you know, I'd say definitely if, let's say, we get go, going in July with, with, with racing in Europe, in countries that will allow it, let's double up. Whether it's two races a weekend, back-to-back race weekends, let's let's double up. Let's get as as much of that money to the teams as we can. And then, you know, like you said, come October, November, mm-hmm. if we can get to Canada, we can get to the to to Coda. Can we get to uh, you know Mexico or or, or Brazil? Or right. Australia, even, or you know, right? You know, mean, but don't I know it's push canceled. Yourself. Yeah, I mean, don't. Yeah, don't push it. But just mm-hmm. let, let's try to save money and get money to them as much as we. Can. So yeah, upshift. Thank you for taking the words out of my mouth again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, question number four here: Lando Norris will be making his IndyCar debut virtually. IndyCar racing challenge at Circuit of the Americas. Um, do you upshift uh, or downshift that we want to see more F1 IndyCar crossovers with drivers? I upshift, and I'm going to keep it short and simple. I just want to see more crossovers in general. I just like more. I just, I just like seeing more drivers try different. 
you know, I think, I think, and, and, and I wanted to, and I know I probably put an in on that Dario's career in racing, but there's something that I've learned from reading that is that really and truly drivers become better drivers when they drive things. You know, Dario was talking about how he was so bad in NASCAR, but he said, you know, he was so bad in NASCAR that it, it helped him learn new things. Like, this is what it's like to be bad. You know, this is what it's like to be in a, in a, in a bad car and a bad team and not know what the heck, you know, and, you know, it teaches you, it teaches you new skills, situations. And I think that after having read that, I think that it would behoove a lot of these drivers to at least try an iRace, a virtual iRace with other drivers and see what it's like, you know, get some, even if you're bad, even if you, you know, even if you completely crap the bed, no, I don't care. It's just cool to see, you know, if, if these guys, if Formula One guys give a shot at an oval or something, I know Lando certain Americans, but say they go to an oval or something, I say they should try it, you mm -hmm. know, because look at the success Alonso had on an oval. I mean, it, it can happen. You know, you can have success. You never know. So, I, you know, I think in general, I just want to see more crossover, period. But for that, I, I, I love it. I love seeing Lando Norris come over and do some IndyCar races. And, you know, I think that's that's great for the series, great for IndyCar in general, great for iRacing in general, because I know anything iRacing related, they're sticking with F1 2019, which by the way, F1 2020 was announced. I think this earlier last week, and it looks very good. It's something I'm going to have to pick up. Um, Young team. Yeah, it's like the coolest part. It's like the coolest that thing. It's something I've always wanted to do. Um, it's like motorsport manager, but yeah. like better, you know? I don't know. So, But anyway, I said I was going to keep it short, and I didn't keep it as short as I wanted to. But yeah, my main point is I upshift, and I'm fine. Yeah, I, I upshift too. Uh, I'd love to see, you know, like Max Verstappen get in there or right. Lewis Hamilton or, you know, any of these young guys uh, or just really successful drivers too, um, come over and try an Indy car. And if they're even, even Indy car guys going driving in these F1 races too, um, we love to see it. Um, I like the iRock stuff that they're doing yes. on Wednesday night where they stick all different drivers from all different backgrounds into just random cars and just say go. <laughs> yeah, like, like, like last, like today when we're recording, they're going to race. Uh, late models at Daytona, um, <laughs> and Will Powers in it. But I'm like, I would love to see Max Verstappen get in a late model and race at Daytona. I mean, it's Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it it's it's quote free. Only thing that costs is your time. Mm -hmm. So if you put enough time in practice, you you know, you'd be fairly decent at it. So, but with I really that said, I was going to say the crossover. Free. I would love to see some IndyCar guys um, racing at Talladega. Racing, racing is expensive. It is not free, huh. I can promise you. Well, I mean, I mean, if you have it, if you have the rig, if you have the, you know, Max Verstappen has the rig. So, right. uh, it, it, you know, the only thing it costs you is your, is your time to have it. For, not, for race car drivers, iRacing is normal people. An iRacing yeah, subscription people. sometimes isn't exactly, it's just in the car. It's just too expensive. Yeah. Especially since you've got to buy the cars and the tracks and everything. Yeah. So That's why people yeah, still I'll, play NR 2003. There you go. There you go. All right, so yeah, I upshift too. All right, so last one here. We're going to try to make this quick. Um, obviously, the COVID-19 crisis has shown how critical sponsorship and television dollars mean to the racing teams in sanctioning bodies. For NASCAR, do you upshift or downshift? This unfortunate world event will be um, the catalyst that sparks major schedule changes for the Gander RV and Outdoors Truck Series in Arca Menard's National Division. Well, I think I think yes. So I'm going to upshift, and I'm going to because you know 
I, I read it, I think it was Bob Pockers or something, I remember, mentioned that NASCAR was looking into, or maybe we talked about it on this podcast, I can't quite remember, but that they mentioned that NASCAR was going to possibly looking at doing races without live pit stops in order to um, cut down on the amount of people that need to be on the shop in order to, you know, prevent the spread of, of the virus just in case, you know, in order to in, in practice social distancing. This is a great time to try it out. You know, if you want to save money for these guys, this is, you know, if you guys go actually go back racing and you want to implement something like that, here are the series to go for it and do it. This Here are the two series that you really, really need. There's no reason to have live pit stops in these two series right now. I mean, these teams are going to be struggling for money. You already look at our national series and, uh, you know, you still have drivers out there driving cars that are 20 miles an hour slower than everybody else. I call them tape cars because they're like 50 to 75% tape, just duct tape that's been used to fix the car for whatever reason. You know, I'm some people might not mind to see those cars go. It would definitely affect car counts. And that's not exactly something that people want to see. You know, you don't want to show up to an art race and only see 15 cars show up and only have like 13 of them be any worth anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Nobody wants to see that. I mean, 20 cars that only have five of them you know, be worth anything is, is, is still better. You know what I mean? It, it's still better than only having 10 cars or 13 cars or something like that. I think, it, I think they, they need to do something. They absolutely need to do something to make major schedule changes uh, and, and major, uh, major anything. I mean, things are going to have to be done and they're going to have to start thinking, thinking on the fly. So I'm going to upshift. I don't exactly have a solution for them, but something's going to have to be done here pretty soon because I'm small racing series, small teams in series. I've said on this podcast a number of times I would love to see both these series really drop a number of big tracks um, and go to you know your smaller tracks. I, I I love Oxford Plains for some reason. I'm just fascinated by that name. But my, you know Oxford Plains, Myrtle Beach, Colorado National, Kern County. You know those types of tracks where you know they don't have a full pit road, but you can utilize the the system that you use in Eldora. I'm going to upshift. But I think we're going to see, like for the truck series, I don't, Arca, I don't maybe see anything different happening because these big tracks are going to, you know, they need, they're going to want money and they're going to be even more hesitant to give up the dates that they have. So if they do, they're going to be like, like a Las Vegas. Okay. The truck series is going to race on the, on the oval. It's going to race on the bull ring now. And we're going to do the same thing we do with. At Eldora, where we bring everyone down pit road and we we you know give them five minutes to do their stuff, and then we restart the race that way. Okay, but instead of going to again and like an Oxford Plains or a Myrtle Beach, so you're what you're going to see is like the 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 host track or host venue site is going to just relocate the race date or the uh, the race to a different facility on their property. So I think mm-hmm. that would be the change because everyone's going to be wanting, you know, the money after the situ after this unfortunate situation again. So it's not the changes I want to see in those two divisions, but we might see some again. But again, yeah. that, this is all speculation. This is a very much a hypothetical question and one thing that we've posed over and over again. So with that, now we're going to roll into because uh, we're at a, an hour or seven minutes here. We're going to roll into uh, Rollers featured racetrack. Um, the last major thing we got coming on here before Rob says his last pieces, and we uh, wrap pieces? up the, uh, the oh, show boy. today. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean I knew um, that. So, uh, last week we were in North Carolina, 
And this week we didn't travel too far. We're going to South Carolina to the Columbia Speedway in uh, Sace, uh, South Carolina, just outside of Columbia. So uh, it opened in 1932 as a dirt half mile. As with every track across the country, it closed for World War II and didn't uh, resume racing until 1946. Um, and then during the 1953 season, there was also a uh, quarter-mile uh, track on, on site within the infield, and uh, then it uh, was paved later on. I'll discuss a little bit of that later. Um, so the first-ever NASCAR Grand National event at Columbia Speedway was also the first Grand National race to be held under the lights. The winner was Frank Mundy which was his first career win, his first of three wins in the 1951 uh, season, which were his only three wins in the, in the Grand National Division. Uh, he won in a 51 Studebaker, and it was the first win for the Studebaker nameplate. <laughs> a lot of firsts this race. Um, Monday was driving for Perry Smith, who was a Studebaker dealer uh, from Columbia, South Carolina. Bill Blair, Marshall Teague, uh, Herb Thomas, and Buck Baker, Buck Baker rounded out the top five. Uh, the only race in 1952 at Columbia Speedway was on April 12th. Buck Baker beat 21 other competitors in a 52 Hudson. He bested Lee Petty, Dick Rathman, uh, Frankie Schneider, and Joe Eubanks. Those were the only other guys on the lead lap. Uh, during the middle of the race, E.C. Ramsey crashed into a passenger car as he attempts to cross the track during the race. Thank goodness that doesn't happen anymore. Thank goodness for good security. As you can imagine, both cars were heavily damaged. Um, and he was classified 20th at the end of the day, out. On March 26, 1955, Chevrolet joined Baker with Columbia Speedway being the site of its first victory in the NASCAR Grand National Division. Fonnie Flock was driving a 55 Chevrolet and beat 21 other drivers in the 200-lap event. The owner of the car was Frank Christian. Sponsorship came from Carl Keycaver's Mercury Outboards. Flock later joined Keycaver's team when Christian's team folded. Uh, that season. April 7th, 1966, David Pearson wins in a 64 Dodge owned by Cotton Owens, and Ford announces that its factory teams will boycott the rest of the NASCAR Grand National season over rules, uh, engine rules that year, a.k.a. Dodge being allowed to run the engines. Uh, this would lead to Chrysler really running away with the competition, and, a, and it led to also a decrease in fan attendance that season. Uh, drivers and teams uh, would continue to run Fords, but without factory support. Paul Goldsmith, Tom Pistone, Pistone, uh, JT Putney, and John Sears rounded out the top five. Richard Petty finished sixth, and Wendell Scott was ninth. Hmm. Uh, fire suits were starting to become more and more common in 1966, but on August 18th of that year, Curtis Turner finished third in a junior Johnson Ford wearing a three-piece business suit. Excuse me, what? Yes, you heard me right. He finished third. Curtis Turner finished third in a three-piece business suit. Uh, Turner later said that his sponsor, Holly Farms, quote, wanted me to wear a suit, but they didn't uh, spe uh, specify what kind, so I wore my best, unquote. <laughs> David Pearson won the 200-lap event, his third straight at Columbia, and was the only uh, driver to win three straight races at Columbia. Richard Petty was, was, uh, was second and drove the number 42. I thought that was kind of interesting. We always think of him in the 43, but he was in the 42 that day. I think I knew he did that a couple of times. Yeah, I didn't. Surprisingly, I did not know that. I feel like Somehow. I might have known that subconsciously, but I had to yeah. just remind like, me. I feel like that's always been something I've known subconsciously. Like I've seen video and pictures of Richard Petty in 42 before. And for, oh. obviously 43 forever, but like I've seen yeah. it. 
in a 42 before. I know it's weird to think about, but like subconsciously, I think we both knew it. We just didn't think about it as yeah. having happened. Yeah. All right. In 1966, Richard Petty won his 19th win of the 1967 season. On that was that race on August 17th, which became a new single uh, season wins record, breaking Tim Flock's record of 18, which was set in 1955. Uh, he had lapped the entire field with second place finisher John Sears being one lap down. Flock was one of the first to congr- congratulate Petty on breaking the record. Um, with dirt tracks quickly becoming extinct uh, on the NASCAR Grand National Circuit. The track was paid for the 1971 season, which would be its last on the Grand National Tour. Richard Petty won both events that season. On April 8th, he won in a 71 Plymouth. Benny Parsons was second in a 69 Ford owned by LG DeWitt, and Dick Brooks was third in a 70 Dodge owned by Mario Rossi. Uh, They were the only three to finish on the lead lap that day. Brad Keselowski's uncle, Ron, finished 26th, that was last place, in a number 88 Dodge. You know, Brackislavski later drove the 88 Chevrolet. Just and he did. Him. And he did. Now, the final race was on August 27th. Petty drove a 70 Plymouth. Second place finisher was Tiny London, a 69 Camaro. And Jim Pascal finished third in a 70 Javelin. Not huh. a name you often hear in NASCAR, but he finished in a 70 Javelin. Once I don't think again, I've heard the Javelin name in at least 10 years for some reason. Yeah, it, it definitely one you don't hear a lot. Now, once again, those were the only three on the lead lap. Ron Keselowski finished last again, but this time it was 30th. Oh. Uh, now, some interesting notes here. The final race was the 43rd Grand National Race at Columbia Speedway. The pole in the race was won by Richard Petty in a number 43 car. Columbia was also the site of the start of Petty's NASCAR driving career. On July 12th, 1958, Petty started the NASCAR convertible division race. He started 13th and finished 6th in an Oldsmobile number number 42. Six days later, he would make his Grand National debut, though, uh, at Canadian Exposition Stadium in Toronto, Ontario, where he finished, uh, where he started seventh, but he finished seventeenth after crashing. Now, the final ten races between 1967 and 1971 were dominated by Richard Petty and Bo- Bobby Isaac. Uh, Petty won five, Isaac won four races, respectively. Richard Petty was the all-time winner with seven victories. David Pearson was second with five victories. And Buck Baker and Bobby Isaac each had four. Now, Wendell Scott found some success at Columbia Speedway. He started 21 of the 43 races at that track, which only Buck Baker with 28 starts and Richard Petty with 24 starts had more. Uh, Scott finished in the top 10 11 times in those 21 races. He also completed the third most miles, 1,875 and a half miles to be uh, precise, uh, and backed it up. With 17 races, he was running at the end of the race. I thought that was pretty neat. So he, you know, he, he only had the one win in Jacksonville, but he had some relative success at Columbia Speedway in South Carolina. Now, Columbia uh, also ho- hosted eight NASCAR convertible races between 1956 and 1959. Jimmy Massey uh, won the inaugural race, and Richard Petty won the final race in 1959. Following the Grand National Division departure following the 1971 season, Columbia hosted four races in the short-lived NASCAR Grand National East Series. Max Barrier, Buddy Baker, and Bobby Allison were winners in 1972, followed by Bobby Allison winning the sole race in 1973. A few years later, uh, in 1977, the track shut down, failing to succeed in a paved capacity. 32 years later, though, in April of 2009, 
Racers Reunion had a Speedway reunion event. Reported uh, re- There was a reported 30,000 spectators there that day. Uh, and it brought attention to the significance of the historical venue, now known as the his- Historic Columbia Speedway. With the support of the community, the owners, uh, Sellers and Sons Holding Company Incorporated, uh, they decided to clear the property of 30-plus years of trees and vegetation to allow the iconic venue to once again serve the public. Now, the track service is no longer suitable for racing and hasn't been repaired, but uh, there are plenty of events that are held there. Uh, and you can walk the surface where some of NASCAR's greats have raced. And I think that's pretty cool that the track survived urban- urbanization in a way. You know, Yeah. We were able to hold on to it. I feel and, like we always talk about tracks that lost to that urbanization. And it's nice to hear about a track that, you know, while it might not hold races, it wasn't like completely destroyed. You yes. know, it was, it was, it was in some way, shape or form preserved. Yes. So I, I like hearing that. I like, I like that. That's actually, that's actually a positive way to like end the whole segment. I like that. Yes. So racing reference, historic Columbia Speedway. NASCAR, the complete history, the history of America's Speedway's past and present assisted in today's roller featured racetrack. Yeah, it's very cool. I've seen it a few times in my in my research, and I thought, you know what, let's just go ahead and talk about Columbia Speedway today. So um, uh, wrap it up. Any last thoughts, Rob, today before we get into what's in the windshield? Not really. I think we should just jump right into that. Here's the windshield for the next week. We don't know where next week's Wednesday night iRacing will be. On FS1, but check that out Wednesday at 7 p.m. Every Wednesday at 7 p.m. It's really interesting to watch. I really enjoy watching it, taking the time to do so. Uh, on Saturday, IndyCar I heads to the virtual Circuit of the Americas. Uh, McLaren Formula One driver Lando Norris racing. We talked about that a little bit earlier. The upshift, downshift. We don't know if there will be any more non-IndyCar drivers in the field, but uh, it's race number five or six. Expect that race to be on NBC and Saturday night, we should also see some more Saturday Night Thunder Talladega Super Speedway, where the Xfinity Truck and Arkham Menard Series all take on each other on eNASCAR.com. Those have been fun to watch, especially since in the first two races, they used good old Gen 4 Arkham cars, and last week, they used an NASCAR Xfinity car. Maybe this week, the truck will make an appearance. We'll see. Uh, and on Sunday, the next eNASCAR iRacing Pro Invitational Series for the virtual Talladega Super Speedway, confirmed on tonight's Wednesday night's iRacing event. Jeff Gordon will be coming out of retirement and racing in that race. So, uh, Josh, you're a Jeff Gordon fan. Uh, you're pretty pumped to see him get behind, back behind. So, I've, it, it, how 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 much money do I have to pay to get Casey Kane to do one? Is what I would, I would love to see out. Casey Kane do this. I mean, that, I, I think cool. he can do some of the dirt events. At least that would be cool. That would be cool too. At least do the dirt events, Casey. I have been a fan of you. Please do this for me. Please, just for me. <laughs> Please yes. do this just for me. Um, uh, I would, I would love that. I and we'll, it'll be interesting to see what Jeff Gordon, what kind of number he runs with, and what sponsor he will be. Because you know, I don't think uh, Willie B is going to give him the twenty-four. No, they've already announced that William Byron's going to be driving the twenty-four C glass Chevrolet, the one like he drove at Daytona. Okay. For the five hundred. Um, I know a combination I would like to see. Give me the one. I don't group. know if it will happen. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep my mouth shut on it. 67 Outback? No, but that's a really good... That'll be a good one, too. But I have no. that diecast. That, I, I have that diecast, too. I actually have two of them, actually. I have one Ooh. that's that is it's still in the box, and, and one oh, that okay. I was... I was However old I was, six, and I got it, and, you know, you, it's a six-year-old, you take them out of the box. I don't care. You're a six-year-old, you're going to take them out of the box, so... 
Yeah, I, 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 uh, I still take them out of the box. I don't. I take some out. I take some. I take some out. Sorry for those who are like, are like, oh my I gosh, take I'll take them out. Not, not the ones you can buy like Walmart or Target, but upscale ones that you can buy online or you can get it like a racetrack. Those I'll take out of the box because you can just put them back in the box and nobody knows. Well, I'm talking about the little, the little one, the little yes, one. It's not the big one. The big ones. Oh, you're just, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. You can. The little ones. You if you get if you get them, they come. Not like in not like in a. Yeah, in they a, come in that little slider box. Right. Yeah. You could take those out and then yeah. put them back in whenever you want. Best uh, thing I ever did. Gordon, I guess. Yeah, I have a Jeff Gordon from 2015 when he drove Rainbow Warriors paint scheme. I bought that on eBay like the moment that it came out. Yeah. And um, and I really like that one. So. Yeah. But anyway. Well, we- with that, we yeah. probably better get going because it's an hour and twenty minutes right here. So thank you for listening today and 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 tuning in. We really appreciate it. We hope we're giving you some entertainment just for a little bit of your day, a little bit of your week through this COVID nineteen world event. Um, spoiler alert, or you know, sneak peek, however you want to phrase it. Next week we have a very special featured paint scheme dedicated to one of the uh, all-time greats in NASCAR, so you won't want to miss that. It's going to be a little bit different. It won't be based off of one year. It's going to be based off of one of NASCAR's greats. So before we go here, also, make sure you follow us on Twitter. Rob is at rpeters33. That's R-P-E-E-T-E-R-S-3-3. Myself, I'm at roller underscore zero one, R-O-L-L-E-R underscore zero one. And the show is uh, Rob and Roller, at Rob and Roller. Just as a spell, or this is a spell there. Um, so thank you again tuning in. We hope you join next time. If you're a first time listener today, we hope you, you hope you enjoy it again. So for Rob Peters, I'm Josh Roller. Thanks for tuning in. This was the Racing with Robin Roller podcast. <laughs>